I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. In a week in which it was discovered uh, in the archaeological dig up in Shoreditch that the Curtain Theatre was not circular but rectangular, and therefore the famous prologue of Henry V, which is, was, well, Henry V was almost certainly premiered at the Curtain Theatre, and the famous prologue which describes the theatrical space as a wooden O, is now going to have to be rethought a bit, as the Curtain Theatre itself wasn't a wooden O, but a wooden rectangle. <laughs> so perhaps the prologue was uh, added a little later for the performance at the Globe, which certainly was a circular amphitheatre. So the instability of the Shakespeare text, a tiny little example there, and it's a great pleasure to be talking to Gabriel Josipovici tonight uh, about his, um, his book on Hamlet, which uh, certainly tackles, and I might even say perhaps relishes, the instability of not just the sweet prince himself, but of the text and of uh, the, uh, the effects of the text on us, and of what Shakespeare was trying to do in the text. Um, to say that Hamlet's a kind of labyrinth which Gabriel has courageously entered, I think is one way of putting it, certainly. Um, T.S. Eliot called uh, Hamlet the Mona Lisa of literature, which was um, only part, or not really, a compliment to it at all. Uh, it was a more a suggestion that the, the Hamlet has become a, had become a receptacle for... Um, subjective, or in some cases plain second-rate sort of theories and critical uh, reactions that um, didn't really do justice to the play. Um, and uh, it is perhaps the iconic play of the, of the canon of Shakespeare's works. Um, I should just say briefly before I'm asking Gabriel, who's the main, the main purpose of us being here, um, say briefly what a, what a privilege it is to be up here with Gabriel, um, the author of more than 30 books, novels, short stories, uh, plays, books of literary and linguistic theory, um, among them the uh, uh, challenging Whatever Happened to Modernism, um, published in 2012, and also uh, a wonderful memoir called uh, A Life, uh, the life in question being that of his mother, um, Sasha Rabinovich, uh, the poet and translator, 
but also tells us, incidentally, if I can put it that way, not really incidentally, a great deal about Gabriel as well. He describes himself as being of, let me get this right, <laughs> Russo-Italian-Romano-Levantine parentage. And uh, he was born in France uh, during the occupation, by the German occupation in 1940. And he spent a great deal of his uh, formative years, if, if I'm right in putting it that way, in Egypt. So he brings to us tonight and to the subject of uh, this greatest of English plays a very cosmopolitan and uh, very modernist sensibility. Uh, and um, I think I'll first ask Gabriel, if I may, um, to elucidate a little this uh, uh, teasing uh, and rather beautiful title and the concept behind it, Hamlet Fold on Fold. Um, what exactly is the, the background and idea of that? Thank you, Charles, for your introduction and thank you for coming. Thank you for the bookshop for having us. Uh, thank you for lobbying that particular one at me straight away. It's a, a difficult question to answer because as any of you who've written any books uh, will know, um, books start out with you know a whole sort of magma of conflicting and complicated, uh, uncertain ideas, in feelings, etc. And I suppose the writing of the book is trying to make sense of all that. Um, and so in a sense, one would have to go all the way back into the, the writing of the book. For this particular title, there's not a very simple answer, so I'll have to give a slightly slightly longer one. But anyhow, I'll try. Um, I was between novels. I'd been writing, uh, publishing, uh, uh, I'd published sort of three or four novels in fairly quick succession, and I felt I needed to stand back a bit. Um, I'm not very good at just standing back and doing nothing, and I thought I'd reread Hamlet. And as I was doing so, um, I suddenly realized what a very, very strange play it is. However well one knows the play and the rest of Shakespeare, suddenly coming back to it like that, I suddenly felt this is really very, very odd. Partly for Charles touched on this, it seems to be we all know it so very well, and yet we also actually don't really know it at all. There's this curious sense, if we were asked to tell the plot of mo you know, all Shakespeare's tragedies, we probably could do that fairly easily, but Hamlet seems to have a very strong beginning, a very strong end, um, like Faustus, but unlike uh, Marlowe's Faustus, uh, the middle isn't just a, a conf confused mess. It's certainly confused, and it certainly doesn't seem to be often going anywhere. But every bit of it is extraordinarily rich and complicated. Um, so there's this strange feeling that, as almost as I said, with, I felt like with one's own body. One knows it very well, and one doesn't know it at all. And so one has this peculiar relation, I think, to Hamlet more than with any other play of Shakespeare's. Anyhow, that was the, the sense I had. When I, um, and it seemed to me, looking at a few and going back over a few readings of it and critical studies that I had enjoyed in the past, um, I felt they were all trying to pluck the heart out of its mystery, trying to uh, get somewhere fairly quickly and then develop what 
it was really about. But of course, that is an image that's in the play itself, and that is reduplicated in the drama of the play, in that uh, the court are trying to pluck the heart out of Hamlet, and part of the theme we might talk about it is how far that is an apt metaphor. It seemed to me it wasn't an apt metaphor for the uh, critical process, or shouldn't be. And I wondered if maybe if one went rather slowly, had a lot of patience. I remember Kafka's uh, lovely aphorism where he says, you know, impatience is what led us to uh, exit from paradise, and impatience is what is stopping us from returning <laughs> to paradise. Uh, we, perhaps a bit know. utopian, but um, <laughs> I felt that if one went very slowly and one sort of monitored one's own response in phenomenological sort of response. I mean, that makes it sound too grandiose and philosophical, but just monitored one's own response to the seeing or reading of it and tried to go rather slowly and carefully. Um, one might be able at least to see why it was that people were going wrong or were rushing perhaps too quickly to conclusions. And then that Malarmé uh, image came to mind uh, of the fan, which uh, Mallarmé was fascinated by fans, uh, imagined poems as being like fans, which when closed sort of are vertical and everything piles up on everything else, but opened, it spreads out in, in space. And it seemed to me this was an apt image for Hamlet, uh, which you know could be better seen perhaps in that way, in that every scene, every uh, sub-scene, every sentence almost, has a whole lot of echoes piling up on top of it, echoes from the rest of Hamlet, so that we can't quite, and they're never quite accurate echoes. They're always slightly um, at odds with one another. So one tries to follow it up, and then one is feels one is missing it. I'm going to quote you back to yourself here, Gabriel, because um, it's, it's a beautiful image, this, of the fan, of poetry, the, the words of a line of Shakespeare opening up to contain and reveal all the other meanings sort of floating around it. If I may quote uh, your own words on this, um, the notion of a fan that can be both shut tight and opened out wide catches precisely what I feel is characteristic of Hamlet, the way that, as the play unfolds, at every moment the rest of the play can be sensed packed vertically and usually vertiginously on top of it. Hamlet seems to be written in such a way that we will always find connections between something in it and something else that hovers close to its edges, waiting to come to life. I think that's a very beautiful um, description of the reading of Hamlet. Um, I, I, I kicked off by using the word labyrinth, which is um, a, a, another sort of idea of, of, of the same sort of thing, a labyrinth full of echoes and uh, uh, strange sort of recurrences and dead ends and uh, loopings back is what I was thinking of. But the fan is, is a lovely image from Mallarmé. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, it wasn't just fans, of course, he was fascinated by curtains. And he has a <laughs> or wonderful. Arises. Yes. 
but Paris perhaps remains that a curtain which uh, he has this image in a poem about Bruges Cathedral in the mist. Suddenly the mist clears and you see it plie selon plie as it's unfolding. And Pierre Boulez, the composer, in his kind of dialogue with Mallarmé, his, his musical portrait of Mallarmé, chooses that as his title, uh, Plie selon plie. So suddenly that, I thought, that could be a good title. And of course what clinched it was that the very second sentence, the third sentence in the play, you remember darkness and these figures, who's there? And then the answer is, stand and unfold yourself. <laughs> and, you know, the editors, if they bother to, to gloss this at all, gloss it as reveal yourself. And of course it is that. But it also has that more physical quality of unfolding slowly, you start to open up and then I'd see who you are. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, with this wonderful image in mind, you have structured your book in, in, in two sort of complementary ways. Um, because in one sense, you, um, I think very daringly, tape the play scene by scene as it unfolds um, uh, on the stage, in the text, um, thereby seeing it with, with a sort of clarity, uh, which um, I think is one of the keynotes of the book, seeing it almost as if for the first time, seeing it in, as it were, real theatrical time, yet you also structure the book uh, so that uh, it, it's divided into 16 folds um, <coughs> arising out of those scenes the scenes are handled seriatim, one after the other, but you uh, discern in them a certain sort of nexuses, or nexi, should it be, of, um, of imagery and of motif and of meanings. And um, I think um, that sort of multidimensional way of dealing with it, both moving forwards in what, what might appear to be a linear uh, or uh, as an undertaking might appear to be a dangerously linear approach to Hamlet, turns out to be anything but linear because you're always alert to the echoes and um, images and, that are flying around, or uh, as you put it in that quote I already gave, of piled, uh, packed vertically or indeed vertiginously on top of any given line. And of course this is very much how Shakespeare works, this sort of... Um, dense sort of uh, 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 radar-like sort of echoes and um, uh, recapitulations of themes in different ways and through different, um, in different atmospheres. And of course we'll find that in, in some of the scenes we might look at a little bit later, Gabriel. But um, your, your, your idea of, of just approaching the play as it were for the first time, or anyway, uh, one scene straight after another, mm. telling the story. You, you say interestingly, of course, in that opening preface of yours, um, that you, you, you once did back in when you were doing teaching, teaching at Sussex University, which, which of course you had a long and uh, continuing relationship with, um, you, you did as a sort of exercise a, 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 a sort of 12 minute version of a, of a famous tragedy and a famous comedy. And you chose for the tragedy Hamlet and you chose for the comedy the importance of being mm. earnest. And you found that the, to condense Hamlet into 12 minutes, am I right at 12 minutes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 12 minutes uh, version worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. The story fitted, 
the themes came out clearly. To condense the importance of being earnest into 12 minutes proved to be a, 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 an impossible nightmare of a task because the, the point of the play is all sort of strange, uh, is all verbal. And but I thought also the point of comedy, as it were. Tragedy has a, a line running through it. Uh, comedy depends much more on revel revelation after revelation, etc., etc. Actually, it was a play I felt very strongly about. It wasn't just an exercise. Uh, the Gardner Centre, which has been resurrected, thank goodness, at uh, Sussex, thanks to, uh, really largely, to, to Richard Attenborough, who was the Chancellor uh, there for a while, um, was given over to students for a, a, a week at a time, and they asked me to write a play, and I thought, I don't want to spend a whole evening with one story, as it were. How can I do something? And I've been fascinated by a medieval image of uh, whether the text is divided into, it's from a Psalter, it's a 12th, 13th century, 12th century Psalter, um, in which the top part of the uh, image has heavenly musicians uh, playing uh, um, uh, on uh, violin, uh, violins, and uh, being very, very pure, and down below, a kind of ape-devil figure banging on a drum, and these six or eight people are doing various things uh, according to his instructions. And I suddenly thought it would be interesting to write a play where um, this ape-devil figure would be both the sort of ringmaster and, in a way, the central character, and he would scream out at these six people, comedy, tragedy, and they would go into. And I thought I would then write a comedy, tragedy, etc., melodrama. And of course, I found if you are trying to get all that across, then start to play with it, because then he would tell them to speed it up, to slow it down, have three people doing Hamlet, four people. Uh, you couldn't do it unless people actually knew the plays. So actually, before Stoppard was doing his thing, I had done. I picked on those two plays because they are obviously, in a way, rather um, canonic. And I thought everyone knows them, one can then work with them and develop them the way one wants. But it did show me. So this Hamlet was 12 minutes, but it was then at another point condensed into two and a half minutes, etc. But it started out as quite a good 12-minute thing, and I saw that there is a line that runs right through it. But on the other hand, as I was saying just a moment ago, it's also there's large parts of it where nothing happens. Or, you know, it doesn't look as the if The bare anything. bones of the story are powerful, almost like a kind of myth, or a sort of, uh, it's become a myth because of our <coughs> familiarity with it, uh, uh, in a way that it, it, it tells its story very compactly, even though it's, of course, mm -hmm. the longest of Shakespeare's plays. The skeleton of it is, um, is very compact. Now, uh, interestingly, sort of catching up from this idea that, uh, of, of, of the relationship between tragedy or the <coughs> distinction you're making there between how tragedy works and how comedy works, you play a great deal, and I think very interestingly in the book, through this, with this idea of um, Hamlet's own um, role that he takes on um, is a kind of comic or clown-like role. And of course, on the cover of uh, Gabriel's book, um, he's chosen the uh, little Paul Clay uh, figurine, The Fool. Um, 
which um, perhaps that mystery I've, I've sort of cleared up a little because uh, the reason for it, in a way, is this idea that Hamlet, um, well, famously, the, what he calls his putting on his antic disposition, his feigned madness, or is it feigned? Of course, the audience starts to wonder as the play evolves. Uh, in order to be a kind of truth teller, in order to be able to hide behind this sort of disguise of madness, uh, in order to find out what's going on, in order to look into the sort of secret politics of Elsinore, this idea of Hamlet often clowning and uh, yeah. of sort of banter and yeah. witty exchanges as a kind of uh, identity that he uses or hides mm. behind, and this in turn becomes a question about Shakespeare. And it, before, if I may, just before you answer that or talk about that, I'd just like to throw in one of my favourite um, quotes about Hamlet. My favourite because it's one of the very earliest quotes about Hamlet. And another reason it's one of my favourites, it's, it's by a writer whose identity it has, has as yet not been established. It comes from a play called, Di uh, sorry, a poem, a long narrative poem called Diphantus, uh, published in 1604, so a couple of years after Hamlet first, uh, well, certainly uh, three, three or four years after Hamlet first hit the, hit the stage. And he says, in, uh, this anonymous author, says in his preface that he hopes his poem will work like friendly Shakespeare's tragedies where the comedian rides when the tragedian stands on tiptoe. Faith, it should please all, like Prince Hamlet. So there's a, 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 an anonymous playgoer of 1604, known only by his initials Anne Sker, A-N full stop, S-C full stop. I am working on this problem, uh, but uh, I won't um, divulge my as yet incomplete uh, researches on him. Um, he is a gentleman, according to the title page. But he is picking up on this idea yes. that um, Hamlet, uh, the particular appeal of Hamlet to the sort of man with his literary antennae well-tuned, as he, he would claim to be, our anonymous playgoer and poet, sees Hamlet as being this fascinating and challenging mix of comedy and tragedy, where the comedian rides when the tragedian stands on tiptoe. A lovely image. Mm -hmm. So you go into yes, this Yes, well, I, I took my cue from a, a throwaway remark of Empson's, uh, as often Empson drops fascinating remarks and then doesn't follow them up, in an essay on Hamlet, uh, in which he's, he's discussing the problem that he imagines Shakespeare had Right, being asked to write a play when there had already been a play in existence with a ghost crying revenge that had probably been very popular, say, in the early 1590s. But by the time that Shakespeare was writing this in the late 1590s, um, had become rather a ridiculous thing. People had suddenly started to feel this was absurd, so that most of the comments about it are of these ghosts as like a fishwife and uh, uh, this, the absurdity and the ridiculousness of it. And Empson says Shakespeare, faced with that, instead of trying to hide the problem, does what great artists do and decided to face it head on and has Hamlet, uh, he says, coming forward, uh, he paraphrases it where he implies, 
and saying, I'm in this ridiculous play, I don't know why I'm here, and I don't know what I'm doing here. <coughs> and it struck me that actually one could see it in, in a more orderly way um, and say that there are a number of possible plays on offer that Hamlet is being asked to become a part of. There's the play that his father is offering him, a play about heroic deeds, a play full of, you know, armor and great, and your book talks about the interconnection, the, 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 the lodger, uh, Charles's book talks about the interconnection between the, the, the work that was done uh, in the shop owned by the people where Shakespeare was lodging, uh, having to do with uh, various uh, ornaments uh, for the hair, uh, and the fashion industry, and the theatre, and saying that theatre at the time and fashion were very closely connected, uh, as film is today. Hamlet, it seems to me, again, is being asked to take part in that. And the, uh, the player, King, gives you, in a way, that sort of speech. And then there's the play that the court and, 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 and Claudius ask him to take part in, uh, which everyone else is taking part in, uh, where you're just getting on with things, everyone's spying on everyone else, and uh, people are looking out for themselves. So the opposite, in a way. And Hamlet is uneasy with both of them, and it seems to me then finds something more congenial in this clown role, um, which, as theatre historians tell us, uh, very interestingly, was one, again, which, you know, where the clown acted as a buffer between the stage and the audience, physically, was somewhere in the middle, often commenting on the action, as indeed Hamlet often does. Um, but the thing is that even here he couldn't quite do it. I think often other Shakespeare plays help one, you know, Shakespeare's other plays always help one with the play one is looking at. And if you think of Henry IV, what you have is uh, a king uh, who has been a great, who is a great warrior, disappointed in his son, who is a ne'er-do-well, seems to be there. And then the son comes along and says, no, 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 actually, I'm only pretending to be a ne'er-do-well, but you'll see it's all going to turn out and I'm going to be an admirable king, and indeed he becomes Henry V and fulfills that. Uh, on the other hand, you have someone like Falstaff, and Auden has a wonderful essay on Falstaff, saying, you know, here is a comic figure who doesn't know about time. His first words are, what have I to do so with, with time? But who is unfortunately not in a comedy. He is in a history play, so that there is a certain point in which his comedic role has to give way. And Hamlet, too, it seems to me, is in a history play, sadly. And there is a point at which he can't go on being a clown. And you bring this to, as it were, a, a, a climax or a, a very central scene to this whole idea for you is the gravedigger's scene. Mm. Uh, interestingly, of course, the gravediggers in the early quarters are described as clowns, mm. Uh, mm. which also meant sort of rustic yokels as well as... Um, uh, sort of stage humorists um, or stage fools, uh, but the the skull of Yorick 
the jester that Hamlet remembers from his own childhood. And there's even some quite precise mathematics, isn't there, in mm, there, where mm, we learn that both that Hamlet is about 30, but rather older than he is sometimes thought to be, and that Yorick had been dead for 23 years, so um, Hamlet knew him in the first seven years of his life. I think I've got that arithmetic mm, right. Mm. And, um, of course, there's some reflection in that in terms of theatre history, Around about the turn of the century, Shakespeare's company was going through something of a revolution in terms of its personnel, connected particularly with the comics of the company. And the uh, departure, whether he was pushed or whether he left voluntarily, of Will Kemp. And Will Kemp was what they used to call an old jigs and bordery man. He was the old-style clown who did extempore jigs and ballads, uh, Hamlet, indeed, in his uh, advice to the players, um, uh, asks that the clown not be given too much license to, to ruin the speeches that had gone beforehand. And uh, around about 1600, around about the time that Hamlet um, first hits the stage, although, of course, this greatest of plays is one of the most mysterious of Shakespeare's in terms of precise dating and uh, its sort of circumstances of composition. Um, Around that time, 1600, uh, Kemp leaves and there, there comes in this new uh, comic actor called Robert Armin, who's a very different sort of more subtle, melancholy kind of fool. Indeed, the word fool is used of him rather than clown. And he is the one we would associate with, with the more melancholy uh, figures like Feste in Twelfth Night, uh, like um, uh, 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 Lavach in... All's Well That Ends Well, and, of course, The Fool in King Lear. Uh, so there's a transitional theat a bit of theatrical history there. And as um, Hamlet holds up the skull of uh, Yorick, he is, according to some theorists anyway, um, looking back to a yet earlier uh, stratum of theatrical com comedians, to the great Richard Tarleton, the great Elizabethan clown, uh, the sort of primal clown of the Elizabethan theatre. Um, and uh, sort of extemporizing on his, um, his sort of more slapstick uh, uh, qualities as, as the, the clown of the 1580s. And, uh, well, there's interesting possible links with the, uh, the earlier Hamlet that Gabriel was mentioning there, uh, sometimes called the Ur Hamlet, i.e. the original sort of prehistoric Hamlet, that, um, according to some readings, was, was an early piece of Shakespeare's own, but most people would say it probably wasn't by Shakespeare, uh, the early one, was around in the early 50, in 1580s already, late 1580s, uh, and may have had Tarleton in it. But that's a, that, that, that's a sort of sidetrack of the, of the kind that you studiously avoid, Gabriel. And, uh, no, no, I, I, not I, at I, all. I thought part of the advantage <laughs> of, my, of the form was that one could move sideways. I, uh, one of the, the pleasures of uh, doing what reading I did uh, background, I decided, you know, Clearly, it's absurd. One isn't, I'm no Shakespeare scholar, I'm uh, no Hamlet scholar. People spend their lifetimes doing it. So there was, a, there was quite a few moments when I thought, hold on, you're crazy to be writing this book. And then I thought, well, years ago, I wrote a book on the Bible, and I had just the same sort of qualms. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought, well, what the hell? Um, I want to write it, so I'll do it and not be entirely irresponsible. I will look at some of what is being done. And certainly one of the pleasures was uh, reading the work of recent theatre historians who have, I think, uh, 
given us uh, an awful lot, which helps. But I think like all, well, like so many scholars, they then, of course, tend to feel that they have the answer to it all. And um, I, he isn't a, a, a theatre historian, but I, I felt very much in this uh, point that you're talking about of the transition. James Shapiro makes a great deal of it in his book, 1599. Uh, this is the moment when Shakespeare takes control so that it's one will is out and another will takes over, as it were. Uh, not Amin, but Shakespeare himself. And this is, you know, nice for a popular book, but it seemed to me to be greatly simplifying because, as you say, uh, Hamlet, uh, the person, is constantly in his antic persona, uh, moving backwards and forwards and through these various uh, kinds of clowns and clownishness. Um, the skull moment is, is particularly interesting um, because you know, one of the iconic images of Hamlet, uh, against which, in a way, my cover was meant to stand, is of Olivier looking at the skull. Mm. And that stands a bit, it seems to me, in cultural history, a bit like the bust of Beethoven. You know, it is an image which tells us, you know, this is melancholy, this is, you know, the communing, this is memento mori, etc. Um, when one actually reads the text, um, something rather different seems to me to, to happen. Um, you know, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He had borne me on his back a thousand times. So his immediate memory when he's told that this skull belonged to Yorick is not of the dead person, he then comes onto the memento mori image, but actually it's as if suddenly the living jester, uh, 30 years before, as you say, suddenly is there, present for him, and present for us, because he evokes him in that. And it's a very extraordinary bit that Yorick has become such a, a figure, although he never appears, of course, in Shakespeare, what we have is a skull, and it could, you know, the, the, the clown or the uh, gravedigger could well be wrong, you know, this is not Yorick's. That particular passage, alas, poor Yorick, um, again, as I say, it it's, it's gets, sets Hamlet off on a kind of memory that fills him with pleasure, just as when he first starts to, you know, when he first learns that the players are there, he forgets all about his anxiety and so on. He's just filled with the joy that this is their come. And it's very rare in the play that he actually lets go, as it were, enough to do that. Um, and it seemed to me that nevertheless, he can't quite escape the feeling that what he is saying is something that has already been said, that what he's saying is rhetoric and not real. And we are back to this Empson sort of thing, that why Hamlet feels so modern? Because he can't fit into any of these things and he feels uneasy, even with the great phrases that he's using. Um, I think I looked at, uh, I was interested in how Stern uses, you know, Stern takes up the figure of Yorick to such an extent and identifies with Yorick so much 
that he publishes two volumes of his sermons at the end of his life as the sermons of Mr. Yorick. And at the beginning of Tristram Shandy, he has some fascinating comments on this. Leading up to that famous black page and the remark, he died, people passed by his tomb, and then he imagines the tomb or he presents it to us. Uh, Alas, poor Yorick, exclamation mark, in black band all around it. Here I'm afraid the printers went slightly wrong and in my text, I hope it will be corrected if it ever goes to a second edition, it's on the right-hand margin instead of being in the middle. Never mind. Um, what, what that thing does, I think, is to alert one to the fact that, you know, alas, poor Yorick exclamation mark as a tombstone is a sort of contradiction in terms that it is wanting to make you feel Whereas the point about what is on a tombstone is that it should simply tell. And in that tension between them, I think, Stern becomes a very good critic of Shakespeare because he asks us to look at even that phrase, alas, poor Yorick, as being one we might, you know, Hamlet maybe is playing game. Maybe Lawrence of Olivia was partly right, that there is a sense in which that is uh, a little drama which he's staging for his own benefit, for the benefit of the people around him and so on. So all that was, uh, it seems to me, is there in, the, in that phrase, as, as it so often is in other phrases. <coughs> so Hamlet, um, although he can't act in the sense of avenging his father's murder, he, he can act. He can play a part. And indeed, he spends his whole time playing parts. Um, I, I'd just like to... Um, we're going to throw it open to the floor in a moment, I think. Um, but I'd just like to also mention um, a another um, contemporary context for what uh, Gable's just been talking about, which is the whole... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, political uh, aspect of Hamlet, the whole aspect of Hamlet uh, written in the late 1590s uh, on the subject of what one might call succession, succession politics. Uh, who is going to succeed to uh, the throne of, uh, of, of, Nor of Denmark? And are the Norwegians going to come down and take it over and so on? Um, 
ideas or, or worries that were very current at the time in England uh, with the ageing of Queen Elizabeth and the uncertainties of who was going to succeed her. And um, these are matters not to be treated on stage in any overt sort of public kind of way. Uh, so I think Hamlet may be Shakespeare or, or contains elements of Shakespeare's uh, thinking about the succession, the kind of neurotic uncertainties that are created by a sort of vacuum of succession. Um, yeah. And there is, throughout Hamlet, this pressure of surveillance, which is, of course, a very real factor in the politics of the late Elizabethan period. Um, Polonius uh, is um, a sort of classic kind of meddlesome, eavesdropping uh, courtier in one sense, but is also a typical example of state surveillance in another sense. Um, lawful espials, he talks of. Um, he, he, he says, I will find where truth is hid. Uh, he tells his son, give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought his act. I will make inquire of his behavior. In these sort of terms, these rather sort of... Uh, 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 un, uh, unpoetic, these rather prosaic kind of uh, inquisitive, um, pragmatic sort of terminology that Polonius uses. We get an idea of him very much as the court sort of spy on behalf of Claudius and Gertrude. And Hamlet's play acting is perhaps a, um, a sort of um, necessary protection against those who would wish to pluck out the heart of his mystery in a way that is a, a, a matter of uh, political danger to him. And so I think Shakespeare is echoing in his complicated and subtle way the rather harsh political realities. Uh, so Denmark's a prison, perhaps late Elizabethan England was something of a prison. Uh, perhaps the time was out of joint and something was indeed a bit rotten in the state to roll together <laughs> three fragments of Hamlet. Um, and uh, these things, so, so, so we, we talk about whatever happened to modernism, which is Gabriel's sort of uh, uh, one of your most recent um, theoretical, uh, if I may say, critical theory or, or cultural theory. Your definition, or one of the definitions of modernism you give in, in that book, is um, that, that it's about art coming into awareness of its precarious status and responsibilities. And uh, to I think I'm paraphrasing the next bit, paraphrasing a paraphrase by someone else, if you'll forgive me. Uh, but Don, Quix Don Quixote, or Don Quixote, is, is very much a modernist work, for example, in, its, in the fraught relationship it maintains with its own narrative modes. And I think both those sort of uh, insights into what modernism might mean, uh, in more sort of fundamental idea of what modern modernism might mean, that comes from Gabriel's 2012 book, whatever happened to modernism, are, are pretty relevant to Hamlet, which, of course, in 1599 or 1600 was ultra-modernist uh, to its audience. It was doing something which hadn't really, or doing it in a way that hadn't really been quite done before. It was a sort of watershed. I think uh, one could probably think in its historical moment it was, as well as us looking back at it as one. Um, can, so, can I come in on yeah, that? Yeah, please. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, <coughs> before your question as to her, um, 
the American scholar Margreta de Grazia wrote a, a fascinating book some years ago called Hamlet Without Hamlet, in which um, she, she points out, and that's the kind of, of close work she does, which is so interesting, that, say, between the uh, Restoration and the end of the 19th century, the play that we have was lopped of all its geopolitical dimension, that is, Fortinbras mm. and all that disappeared. And it became that romantic play about the unhappy prince, the melancholy prince. Uh, and part of her task, she sees it, is to uh, fight to restore Shakespeare to the Renaissance and not to what has happened to him since. Now, I thought it was a fascinating book, but it seems to me that in a way she doesn't carry it far enough. That I think that my book, as you're suggesting, uh, and I couldn't decide, I came, when I'd finished it and was thinking about it, I thought, well, maybe uh, that earlier book, Whatever Happened to Modernism, was a prologue to this, yeah, exactly. or maybe this is an appendix <laughs> to that. In that. I argued there that really modernism if we are to understand the, the metaphysical issues involved, you need to go back to that Lutheran moment of, you know, ich kann nicht anders, I, I, here I stand, I can no other. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, editors are a bit chary of mentioning the fact that uh, Wittenberg, that Hamlet has been to university in Wittenberg, and that actually it, in, you know, in intellectual and religious history, it has rather an important place. Uh, so that it seems to me that this is the point at which, of course, you know, Luther is so important because he is, he's put his finger on a kind of malaise that was, you know, had been growing over the last century or some scholars say two centuries and so on. Uh, so that, you know, we can't pinpoint it, but it's, it's quite useful, as it were, to say it is with that moment that uh, a whole questioning, which we've seen Shakespeare doing with the history plays of authority, the authority of kings, the authority of popes, the authority of writers, uh, is suddenly called into question. Um, so that Hamlet becomes this, Hamlet the, the play and Hamlet the person, uh, seems to me to be very much of his time, as you say, Hamlet the person, very much of his time, but also uh, very modern in, in the sense that I used it. And it seemed to me that since the late 16th century, uh, philosophers and religious philosophers have been struggling with this, whether it's Pascal or, I feel, Kierkegaard in the early 19th century fully explored this better than anyone else. And I use Kierkegaard quite a lot in order to help understand the melancholy of Hamlet, Hamlet's sense that he's, everything's already been done, that it's all second hand, that um, all choices are equally bad, uh, and yet we have to choose in Kierkegaard's either or. Uh, the young man, who is in a way Kierkegaard's alter ego, uh, keep saying, you know, I, I can't make up my mind. I don't know, I can't get married because, uh, you know, why this woman, not that woman, and so on. And the wise old judge says, no, no, you just marry and then everything be okay. 
then he says, but you know, how do I know who to marry? And so on. So these become issues. And I think they are already there in these two late 16th, early 17th century works, Hamlet and Don Quixote. So that um, I don't think that I'm you know, going far away from what Margareta was saying, although I want to put Hamlet firmly back into the play. Well, I think that's, in the end, the, um, the great achievement of your book, Gabriel, is that uh, although we've, uh, or you, and therefore we this evening, have ranged through, briefly, touching anyway, Kafka, Kierkegaard, Mallarmé, uh, Richard Tarleton, the Elizabethan clown, and his successors, and uh, politics, and um, another thing I'd mention, of course, is that also a famous alumnus of Wittenberg at that time was Giordano Bruno, mm -hmm. the great... Elizabethan occult, or the great Italian occultist uh, from southern Italy, but who had spent time in Elizabethan London and had been very influential in creating a, a sort of new idea of uh, where knowledge might lead, and uh, an idea that knowledge might lead somewhere other than to re religious sort of uh, uh, clashing religious ideologies, Catholic and Protestant, a kind of third force. And he, he, his influence is possibly felt in... Um, Hamlet as well, as it very much is in the work of Marlowe in Dr. Faustus, um, another mysterious play with a hugely uh, charismatic central character. But we've ranged through all these, just briefly, yet as um, you say uh, in your book, uh, that the, the true answers uh, to these questions are to be found exploring the text itself. And I love the way your book is, uh, despite these, um, these uh, fan-like openings, um, uh, grounded in the text, uh, and that, as always, you say, Shakespeare will be a sure guide if we will only listen to him. Um, perhaps at this point, I, I don't know if anyone's got any questions or points they'd like to raise, because we'd be very happy to hear them or answer them, um, unless we've possibly said it all. <laughs> on the subject of Hamlet, which you know, we might have done, but <laughs> I suspect not. I was just wondering, um, you mentioned Olivier and his depiction of Hamlet. I wondered how much help modern productions or modern examples of actors trying Hamlet can help in uh, trying to determine what Hamlet means as a whole. I was struck in recent years by David Tennant's Hamlet, where he played the wisecrack almost too far, but it tunes in with one point that you did, did make. I just wondered if you'd thought about this at all. Uh, I'm told, I haven't seen it, but I'm told that it is a wonderful Hamlet, that. Uh, and of course, productions will always help. But even if one disagrees with them, one will start to think, well, why do I feel so strongly that this isn't good? Or, my goodness, I hadn't seen that. Uh, and of course, no one production, because they're all readings in a way, um, is going to you know, get it all. But one, the, the one that stays in my mind most is... Uh, a modern dress production that uh, Buzz Goodbody did, the first female director, the RSC, who is actually a pupil of mine at Sussex, 
Um, and uh, sadly, she, she uh, committed suicide on the opening night uh, that uh, Ben Kingsley was in. And it was at the other place, and it was a chamber performance in a way. It allowed the text to be, as we can now hear it say, at the Wanamaker Theatre. The actors can can work together rather than have feeling they have to declaim, come forward and declaim. And that enriched it so much. It was a wonderful, wonderful uh, production. I don't know if, it's ever, if it was ever filmed or anything. I, I'm going to, if I may, just also answer that mm. briefly mm. or by switching it yeah. right round and saying um, never to be forgotten that Shakespeare himself wrote Hamlet for a particular actor, Richard Burbage, for a particular actor whose strengths and... Uh, uh, and um, uh, abilities and particular skills uh, Shakespeare knew intimately already by that point. Um, and that um, it's the longest Shakespearean part in existence. Um, <coughs> uh, and that there's the famous scene where Hamlet gives his advice to the players, uh, which you're a little reluctant to, uh, <laughs> to accept this wonderful nugget of Shakespearean uh, advice to, 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 to actors, speak the speech, I pray you as I pronounce it to you, trippingly upon the tongue, nor do not saw the air too much. But for reasons that you gave, that <laughs> Hamlet himself there says, you know, you should shut up the clown and so on, yeah. <laughs> which is clearly at odds with everything that's going on in the play. And this is the point that Margrethe de Grazia makes very forcefully, that actually this is a humanist view, uh, all the, those speeches, which get taken over because they're the only thing we have the of the Elizabethan theatre, only Shakespeare, theater, in which it Dying. seems he is Dying. telling us how his, he wants his plays performed. I don't think he's doing that at all. <laughs> Hamlet is here presenting an idealised view, but and everything enough, in the play goes against it. It's Hamlet, uh, at this point, he's just becoming less and less sort of tripping upon the yeah. tongue and, and forbearance and temperance, as he said. That's you right. Know, your performance should be full of temperance, mixing different emotions and not uh, shouting it. I had as leaf my words be mouthed by the town crier and so on. Uh, keep it quiet and soft, just as he himself, mm. Hamlet himself is. So, but I still think also that it must in some way be a reflection of how Burbage himself played uh, these big poetic roles, um, sort of softly, softly, getting, in terms of theatrical history, getting away from the strident, old-style, Edward Allen, uh, Marlovian, mighty lines sort of stuff that had been going on a few years ago, and which is to some extent mm. parodied in the play within a play that Hamlet puts on in order to catch the content. So anyway, I, that, that's just to turn your very interesting question around the other way. Of course, the one we, we're most recently been um, enjoying, I think probably mostly, I don't know, I did, uh, was, is Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, if we're all Cumberbitches, I don't know. But, um, um, and David Tennant's, uh, the production with David Tennant, in, I, I know was a one that particularly brought out this element of political surveillance very strongly. Mm -hmm. And so Hamlet's wise-cracking, uh, self-protective wise-cracking almost, because everyone's listening behind the arras. Rats and snoops alike use the arras as a mode of concealment. Do we have any evidence on the 
the earliest reactions of the audience to the first performances, to put it in very simple terms, what did they laugh at or were they supposed to laugh at and what they were supposed to take as tragedy? Charles, we know much more about well, this uh, than I will. The man I, I, I quoted earlier from this poem, Diphantus, obviously enjoyed uh, the idea of the comedian um, riding while the tra tragedian stood on tiptoe, i.e., there's a sort of counterbalancing. And Hamlet is obviously preeminently a play that does mingle sometimes clashingly the sort of wit and, um, and, and uh, more sort of tragic motifs. Um, a, a, another early echo of Hamlet is in a play called uh, Satyromastix, um, performed at the Globe in late 1601. It's part of what's generally called the War of the Theatres. And um, in it, uh, a character who represents Ben Jonson, um, I mean, this is definite, it's written into the play, uh, is hauled onto the stage uh, uh, for his manifold sins as a thorny-toothed satirist, as he's called it. Uh, and he has two pictures thrust in his face, and it's just like Hamlet uh, thrusting these two pictures in the face of his mother, one of his father and one of his uncle. Uh, 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 and, uh, and Johnson, who goes by the pseudonym of Horace in this play, is forced to look at the difference between his own portrait and that of the true poet Horace. Um, that's a rather complicated, not very well described little echo of Hamlet that occurs uh, in a few, probably within a few months of the, um, of the, of the first production uh, and put on stage by Shakespeare's own company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. So it's a sort of bit of a, a, a bit of puffing going on between the two productions. But again, it's a sort of, it's a comic take on what is a highly dramatic moment. Uh, and indeed, Johnson's, another of Johnson's comedies, one he wrote in uh, collaboration with two other writers, George Chapman and John Marston, which is a play called Eastwood Ho, also has a bit of a joking around Hamlet uh, because it has a serving man in it called Hamlet and his mistress is called Gertrude. And... Um, <laughs> I can't quite remember how the joking goes on, but it's, it's very deflationary, let's say. Um, so, um, interestingly, those are sort of reactions. Um, my, my man, the anonymous author of Diophantus, um, also seems to give us to, 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 seems to imply to us in some things he says about Hamlet running mad, that one of Hamlet's, or one of Burbage's sort of stage tricks uh, during the sort of antic disposition scene is to drink some ink. Oh. This apparently being a sort of sign of madness and also rather a good sort of symbol mm. for um, <laughs> Hamlet's sort of, um, sort of hyper-eloquent, uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, you know, motor-mouth <laughs> element, uh, that he's drunk up ink. Because it's in that scene where Ophelia talks about him coming in with his doublet all embraced and his, his shoes untied. Uh, this is all the sort of sign of, 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 of the crazy man, the sort of melancholic man gone, gone, gone a bit haywire. And uh, according to this poem, Diphantus, which has some uh, reflections on having seen Hamlet, um, it seems that one of Hamlet's tricks, or Burbage's tricks to display his madness, was to, um, to drink from a bottle of ink, possibly the bottle of ink he'd been using earlier when he set it down in his tables or notebook that a man may smile and smile and be a villain. Um, notebooks on stage are another important sort of uh, little feature. Hamlet's one of play many plays at this time that 
has people writing things down in it. And you also talk a lot about um, letters and overheard. Yes. Uh, you know, these framing devices whereby Hamlet's heard to say something or he's, a letter is intercepted in which he says something. But anyway, just to, to answer your question there, it seems like the first echoes of Hamlet, or the first interest in Hamlet that gets written down, um, focuses on this idea of a play that um, mixes <coughs> in this very powerful sort of cocktail of tragedy and comedy. I think these uh, uh, contemporary references can often be very interesting, but they don't really tell one how the play was being received, because people are working within sort of received notions of what theatre or, 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 or fiction or whatever is. And I often feel, and this is true even of critics today, that as a reader, when he's responding in much more complicated and subtle ways, it's when one comes to then say, ah, what was I thinking? How, what was this book about? What was this play about? That one sort of simplifies and one picks up on the cliches of the time. Mm. Uh, so I think it, it doesn't necessarily mean if one finds no reference to, say, you know, certain aspects of things, that they don't exist and didn't exist for, for the people. Hi, I wanted to just change in the subject actually a little bit. Um, ask about um, you refer to Pierre Boulez <laughs> in the introduction, and I really enjoyed your references and sort of talking about the ear and the importance of hearing and the ear as a symbol in Hamlet. And um, whether you could talk about the um, the experience of watching the play through time and. And that perhaps is an, an acoustic ex experience as much as a, a, you know, sense experience or a meaningful experience. And of course, a very, very difficult one to, to encapsulate in, in words. And uh, it is part of that whole theatrical experience that we were sort of touching on. I mean, I try as I go through to give some sense of it. And Charles was just alluding to uh, the. Uh, you know, these constant encapsulations, this constant putting not just of scenes within scenes or plays within plays, but we know of, you know, Hamlet's banter with Polonius, uh, the notion that, you know, well, Polonius, you're not sure if he's playing along with him. Yes, you know, a whale, very like a whale, and so on and so forth. Um, but actually, there's something quite deep there. There is this sense, it seems to me, that uh, Hamlet is suddenly aware that it's possible to frame everything in different ways. It all depends on how you frame it. So again, you know, somebody, a particular theatrical production, its particular sound world will be a kind of frame. And the play seems to me to be constantly trying to escape even from the condition of being a play. That's why it touches us so much that it is there at the at the point, at the edge of it, as it were. Uh, but these are, you know, difficult things to sort of pin down. I can't say any more really about the acoustic. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you to pick up uh, something that you started to raise in the book, but then I thought uh, didn't go into very deeply. But it seemed to me to give on quite a broad landscape, uh, and that was the question of the propriety 
of looking at Hamlet through a sensibility that, if not formed by writers like Beckett and Kafka and Mallarmé, was at least uh, profoundly imbued with them. And you raised it, and then I thought didn't go as far into it as I had hoped you might. No book I write will will answer all the questions, but in fact, you know, one will be compelled to go on and think about aspects of it. And I did there as much as I felt was necessary. And I thought I sort of here suggested a kind of explanation, which is that, you know, what you get Kafka writing in his diaries, what you get Kierkegaard, is in a way something that is already being touched on by, by Hamlet. And I don't think it is simply reading. Or you could say, you know, in this sort of Borgesian way, that because of Kafka, we can understand Kafka's avatars. You know, he has this wonderful essay, The Avatars of Kafka, uh, that we can understand the uh, figures who came before in a way that was perhaps not possible till. Um, at least it gives us a sort of framework. Of course, one is always open to the um, criticism, which I hope is misguided in this case, that yes, it is simply reading it in a modern way and it should be returned to its 16th century place. I hope that I sort of started to answer that. Um, I would just like to draw your attention to and in reply to my colleague's statement, that um, in Hamlet's dying words, Laerte says to him, noble Hamlet, exchange forgiveness with me, mine and my father's debt, not on thee, and my debt, your debt, not on me. And Hamlet says, let heaven make thee free of it, I follow thee. They forgive each other. Now, they die in a state of grace, which, was, which the old king didn't get. And it's been completely, completely ignored. So then Hamlet says to Horatio, Horatio, if thou didst ever love me, upset thee from a felicity a while, and in this so-so-so-so tell my story. So therefore, I am saying, I am actually saying, that Hamlet has died in a state of grace, unlike his father, because Laertes and Hamlet have forgiven each other for the most atrocious of crimes. Mm -hmm. And basically, th that issue is that Hamlet has come full circle that his father did not achieve. Yes, I mean, I'm a little bit unhappy with words like state of grace, but that may just be me. Um, I, I explore a little bit the fact in the book that Horatio, at the end, gives two versions of Hamlet, in a way. The first is a eulogy, which is only two lines long, good night, sweet prince, and flights of angel to thy rest. And the other, when he is asked to tell the story, he says, oh, it's a tale full of confusion and uh, murders pinned on the wrong person, and so on and so forth. And it seems to me both are true. We who have lived through that, the four hours uh, commerce of the stage, uh, have, you know, we can focus on simply, oh yes, this is all accidental slaughters and so on. So, or we can focus on say, yes, this is, 
you know, this was a wonderful man who did wonderful things. I think, you know, both of them are partly true. Uh, certainly within his life, it, does, it seems to me that Hamlet does not come to any final understanding. We have more understanding as we uh, depart uh, from the theater, as we start to take in what we have been living through. Uh, we start to see both the confusions and the absurdities and all that's happened there, that's chance, etc. The tragedy, too, of what he was asked to do and couldn't do or didn't want to do and finally does. And the wondrous aspect of him, the, the thing that the people around him admired, that Ophelia admired, the Renaissance prince, the things that Horatio admired, but also things that uh, we were talking about earlier, that the audience loves and admires, the humor, the, the way in which he always has the last word, his, his ability to, to work with words. All these things are part of what the person is. Okay. I, 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 I would just wonder whether you know over what period of time Hamlet was written, because it has some of the hallmarks of a play. That's, I, I love this, um, you know, the fact that he was given this rather ludicrous and impossible brief and must have started writing or could have started writing without quite knowing where he was going and um, found himself in a series of scenes and brought the images from the previous scene into the next scene and hadn't maybe had known how he was going to end or maybe only worked out halfway through where, where he was going. And um, I, I just wonder what you think about that. Um, I don't think we can, um, we can really make any precise observations on the way the play evolved because the, the literary evidence is more mysterious and complex than practically for any other Shakespeare play. Um, not only are the two very different printed texts the so-called bad quarter of 1603 and the so-called good quarter of 1604, um, one of which, the second of which is the one we kind of know and love, uh, the first of which seems to be a truncated or rudimentary version of it, perhaps a memorial reconstruction, but also containing things that might be earlier drafts and, um, uh, uh, and sort of um, scenes that uh, got transformed in a later rewrite. Uh, the, the sort of geology of Hamlet is, is almost impossible to work out, is the short answer. The other thing to say is, in a more generic sense, um, I think it's becoming more and more understood the way a Shakespeare play evolves to some extent in rehearsal, in, on the stage, in a, as a collective operation. Um, not to take away from Shakespeare's authorship, uh, but the idea, I mentioned Burbage earlier, he wrote the play for, or the part of Hamlet, I should say, for Burbage, um, other parts for other, even some quite minor actors. There's evidence, not in Hamlet particularly, but in other plays, that the physical characteristics of some quite minor members of the company uh, are constantly uh, used in creating a certain part, some, perhaps a minor character. Um, so the plays evolve, also, he's probably working on at least two plays at a time. The sort of chronology would suggest that uh, perhaps even a, a sort of um, agreed quota as the, the resident playwright of the company of two a year. So there's refractions and reflections going on. Sometimes they're, they're, they're sort of quite um, obvious. Uh, but um, um, so um, 
the composition is a complex business. The last thing one wants to think of is Shakespeare off in some garret in, in ivory-towered uh, composition. Um, the sort of romantic artist at work. He's down there, A, at street level, <coughs> imbibing through his, through his skin uh, everything that's going on around him, which then gets strangely transformed into bits and pieces of, of metaphor and poetry, most of which we can't actually elucidate back to what it was that actually caused that to be there in the first place. It's just something going on around him. And secondly, this idea that he's sort of um, a, a part of a collective production machine of, um, to, to manufacture plays. And although he writes the scripts, they are developed very much, I think, in a collective sense. Thank you very much. Um, you spoke about uh, that sort of romantic, uh, introspective subject, Hamlet, um, who, which has become a sort of iconic image of Hamlet, and how you were very interested by criticism that sort of zoomed out a bit and brought in all the political context. Is your Hamlet a Hamlet whose subjectivity is constantly masked in disguise? Um, I just want to know your idea, your feelings of Hamlet and his subjectivity in general. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, as I sort of tried to say, what fascinates me, why it seems to be a kind of ever-retreating quest that one, you know... Um, this sort of Russian doll effect is that, as Charles was saying earlier, all the court are concerned to understand what Hamlet's motivation is. It's important for them, for political reasons. And Hamlet refuses that by, you know, most famously talking about how you know you can't even play the oboe or you can't even play the recorder and yet you would play upon me you know as uh, you would play upon an instrument so he sees that this is something quite different that subjectivity is not something you can simply peer into a person's center and pluck it out pluck the heart out of the mystery but of course and i don't think the critics talk about this very much Hamlet himself is guilty of just that. Again and again, he keeps saying, who am I? What are, as if there is a single answer. Why am I not like the player king? Why am I not like Fort, young Fortinbras? Um, this is what I am, or this isn't what I am, and so on. So it's as if this, this metaphor of something inside which you have to bring out into the open is so all-pervasive as it is in our culture generally uh, still uh, that it seems if there's no place for anything else but I think the place and Hamlet is struggling against that and if I have you know argue about anything uh, in, in the court the thing that drove me really was the suggestion that Hamlet is not made up of an answer to that which is found by introspection but the shape of his life as we see it unfolding and as it is celebrated at the end. So that it's, you know, in Malarmé, again, I quote, has a wonderful remark in uh, uh, a memorial poem to Edgar Allan Poe, where he says, as in himself, eternity changes him. Changes him. Tel qu'en lui-même l'éternité le change. Uh, as if it's only after our death that it is possible to make sense 
but that goes against, you know, all the thrust of our culture to say, you know, ah yes, has he understood? Have we understood? As if there was this thing that can be understood rather than the shape of something, which is what seems to me to to come through from the play at the end, which is why one needs then to follow it through all its its the the the, the patternings of that shape. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.